Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And today we're really delighted to be joined by April Cornfield, who is a leader of a group called Braver Angels, which is doing really important work in the area of trying to bring our politics together and to kind of deal with the polarization that has taken hold in our country. April has a really interesting background. She's from Kansas originally, went to Yale University. Um, from there, she had some really remarkable internships. She's done some internships at the U.S. Treasury Department, the City of New Haven, uh, the House Financial Services Committee, a congressman, also some overseas work at, uh, in um, Honduras and Argentina and also China. Professionally, she worked for several years with David Brooks, the columnist from the New York Times, did research for him there, and they co-founded a group called Weave, which is trying to fix our, our social fabric. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then she joined Braver Angels, <coughs> pardon me, in 2018, and has played a, a role in their debate and public discourse program, which has gotten a lot of attention across the country. And April is joining us from her office in D.C. Hello, April. Hello there. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. Well, we were talking a little bit beforehand. Tell us about growing up in Kansas. You say that uh, when you went to <laughs> Yale, not everyone knew exactly, uh, you know, what Kansas was about. Tell us a little bit. I mean, about <laughs> I bet a lot of you have had the same experience, but yeah, no, it was, um, uh, I, so it was interesting. I am somebody who from like my, my very uh, birth basically has been navigating the political divide because I grew up in a very uh, conservative evangelical area, but my family, my parents are liberal atheist college professors. And so it was a really interesting um, and not always easy uh, thing where our community and then my family just saw things really differently. And so I, I mean, like, I love Kansas. I think it's great. Um, but uh, it wasn't people, mm, <laughs> it's just kind of hard to be different as, as a lot of people experience in lots of ways. And so, uh, while I was in Kansas, I was sure that like, I wanted to like go to the East coast and like become like a somebody and whatever, uh, and go to a place where things actually happened. And then when I got to Yale, I, um, it was really different than I thought. I loved Yale, but I also understood how little people sort of, um, there was just a, a sort of undercurrent of, you're from where? Um, like of, of, oh, you're from a backwards place kind of. And obviously people didn't say that, but like there were just a lot of assumptions. And so I found myself getting really protective and defensive about Kansas and being like, no, no, it's a really great place. Like you don't understand. And that then, um, that and some other things led to, uh, yeah, just navigating the political divide at Yale too. And so it's, um, it's been a, uh, just an interesting journey. And the thing I feel like enables me to, to engage this work really deeply is that I have been really close to people on, in, from basically every political perspective you can think of. Like most of my friends from high school and people I love there uh, are very into President Trump. Um, my Yale friends, for the most part, like do not understand how anyone could be for President Trump. Um, I live in DC, which of course has both sides, but it's, uh, I believe in like in my heart really deeply. I just know that there are really good people on both sides of this divide and on all the different sides of it. And so, um, yeah, it's just been, I feel like my life has um, prepared me for this work uh, and to understand some things about our country, they're not that easy to see. Well, Yale, you studied anthropology as I understand it. Um, what drew you to anthropology? And then also, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the grand strategy program that you were in, because we actually had an event a couple months ago with Professor Gaddis talking oh. primarily about his book about uh, George Kennan, but we talked a fair amount about the grand strategy program and its concept and so forth. So if you could yeah. talk about both anthropology and then grand strategy. Absolutely. Well, so I went into Yale not knowing that anthropology existed, like I didn't know what that was. And I, um, but I intended to study uh, 
psychology and international affairs, because what I really was trying to get at was culture. And um, I have always been believed pretty strongly that uh, in America, or sort of the prevailing political philosophies that drive our discourse tend to assume that people do things because of economics, uh, because of personal choice, because of beliefs. And I, I don't know why I've always felt this way, but it has always seemed clear to me that culture is a really powerful driver of people's actions. And so I, my parents, by the way, are, are economics professors. So the economics, <laughs> like economic incentives, very, um, you know, I was very aware of those as, as a, a child. Um, and, but I always felt like there was this, this other piece. And uh, so I wanted to study culture, which by the way, when I was saying I wanted to study psychology and international affairs, I was trying to get to culture. And um, I sometimes think of anthropology as sort of, or, or of culture as studying like the psychology of a people, like uh, of a, um, a nation or a, a people group or a place. And so I found that, um, you know, people look down on anthropology and sociology sometimes in academia, but I actually, and, and it's um, known as not practical, but I, what I always want to tell people is anthropology is like relevant to every single room you walk into because there will always be group dynamics and little tribes and little customs and phrases that people uh, they think you should know, or if you don't know them or you do, they, they assume things about you. And it's just very uh, ever present. And so I feel like um, anthropology trained me really well just for, for the world, for life. Um, and that American philosophy and, and frankly, just the, the things that undergird our thought do not fully appreciate how powerful culture is. And so I, I always love reading anthropologists or people who have any familiarity with that field, because I feel like they are um, their voices have uh, sort of proportionally more powerful insight because fewer people are are listening for that piece of the truth. And then with regard to grand strategy, I love grand strategy. It was my favorite class at Yale. Um, it's a I'm delighted that you got to talk to Professor Gaddis, um, who it's funny, some of the grand strategy students graduate and immediately start calling them like John or Professor Hill Charlie. I can't do that. Like I see these guys as like legends and kind of, and so that we got to actually interact with. And so I, um, it was, uh, I had a, that was one of the two-ish experiences at Yale I had that I felt really, um, really try to train, teach you leadership and not just in a, um, there, are, of course, universities are always trying to teach leadership. That's a, it becomes a very watered down word, but that program pushed us to, yeah, learn the theory. And then it put us in positions where we had to try to try to create policies. We ran simulations where um, you are faced with a difficult world, world phenomenon and you're given a role and you've got to figure out like, uh, what do you actually do? Because I, I think that Theory is great, right? But the world is messy, and um, and I also was just—I uh, remember feeling like I had learned how. Um, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but how diffuse power actually is. People think that like a congressman is the person. So you mentioned right that I had worked in—I've worked in on the what we call the Hill on Capitol Hill a couple times, and you, one thinks that. Um, the member of Congress is this all-powerful figure who like, there's the power, right? In that guy or that, that woman. Um, but actually like they get a lot of their positions from what their aides tell them. And their aides get a lot of their opinions from what the think tanks people tell them. And the think tank people are getting a lot of their insight from academia. And it's just this very like, so uh, I think it's possible. I would I would encourage people to remember that um, you, you often have a lot more power than you think you do because structures of power are more diffuse than they appear. So lots well, of things I learned there. And I know David Brooks was, has, uh, had some affiliation with the grand strategy class. Is that how you met him? And that led to your working relationship as both kind of a researcher at the New York times and then that joint venture at Aspen. You know, it's funny because he taught at Yale before and after I was there, but not while I was there. 
And so I had to earn his like attention myself in the sense that what I, um, what I tell people is uh, <laughs> that I stalked him for seven years. And that's like mostly a joke, mostly. Um, and the, the story though, is that I graduated from Yale and moved to DC. And I assumed I would work for some Senator or some somebody, but I looked around the field and there was only really one person whose voice was like voicing again, culture and like the, the values and the way of engaging the world that I admired and wanted to like throw myself behind. And that was David Brooks at the New York times. And I, so I, you know, I, I had various jobs, but I, the first year I was there, I went to a lunch that he was doing and I got him to give me his email address. Um, and then I wrote to him and he didn't write back. And then I went back the next year to the same lunch and I like had written him a letter. So I gave him that and, you know, I emailed him and he didn't write back. And then a couple years later, I needed a job. And so I, you know, emailed him, I think uh, literally eight times, like once a week on Tuesdays for eight weeks saying, I'd just love to have coffee. And then uh, he eventually got back to me and was like, oh, sorry, I was, uh, I was busy with my book. And I was like, yeah, sure. But probably you just want me to stop being in your inbox. But um, he, uh, he said, let's meet up. And so I got to know him a little bit and he had just hired somebody. But then the next time that job came around, um, I, I was interviewed and he picked me. And so what I would say is just, um, <laughs> I, yeah, persistence sometimes pays off. And if you find something that you love, I have found that it's easy to want to give up on it, but it pays to stick with it. And I never thought that was going to work out, right? Like that whole time, but then it did. So that's how I got in there. And yeah, and I loved working for David. That's, I tell people that's the best job in Washington because he's, um, not all columnists are willing to let you be part of their intellectual process and like their real, uh, their thinking, um, but he did. And so I learned so much. And then I also uh, was able to, I guess, offer enough back that then when he was founding, working on, on starting the, the Aspen Institute program, I, I said, you know, that's that's what I wanna do too. And and so then we did it together with uh, an Aspen Institute leader named Tom, Tom Loper. Um, the three of us kicked it off. Well, tell us about the WAVE program, because it seems like it, it connects pretty nicely to what uh, your next uh, and your current work at Braver Angels. Definitely, definitely. So um, WAVE was basically, David and I both felt after the 2016 election that, so as was true for a lot of people, David is the conservative at the Times. I am a, I identify as conservative, but I don't, you know, I'm not a um I was working in DC and like was surrounded by people who went to Ivy League schools and whatever. And um, so for people like us, nobody saw it coming, uh, the, the election of President Trump. And it was a, a real wake up call. And I think uh, a shock that that needed to happen, frankly, um, because the the degree to which we were out of touch with how much pain there was in the country. Um, we, I, I just think I, I consider myself among the people who needed to be like sort of slapped into like oh no, this is a, a really, a much more serious problem than people take it for. And so I think David and I both believe, uh, have believed for a long time in the power of community and that uh, the decline of community in America and the increase in social isolation is um, underlying a lot of other social ills. I think it undergirds the opioid crisis, deaths of despair, the rising suicide rates, also political polarization. Um, I would actually, say that uh, it has something to do with the racial strife that we see. And so um, the question though is what do you do about it? And David had been writing columns at 40,000 feet for 30 years or something. And, <clears throat> and both of us just felt a need to do something. And so we was our attempt to figure out how do you support communities? Um, and, and so what, what we've does is it essentially tries to uh, again, coming back to culture to the idea is that relationships don't scale. Um, so you can't like, you know, it's the whole starfish thing, right? A person walks onto a beach, throws one starfish back, but there are lots of others. And um, 
there's the the thing that is said about that is uh you know little boy says to man well what about all the others they're still out there it doesn't matter that you saved that one and and the old man says well it mattered to it mattered to that starfish right and that's a beautiful idea and also <laughs> this problem is huge and so um we then the idea was that relationships like you can't one by one isn't enough. And so it's hard to scale relationships, but you can scale norms, which is to say people these days are very individualistic. They're very atomized, but the, our society has not always been that way. In fact, Tocqueville uh, saw a society that was deeply woven together by volunteerism and by small uh, local groups that took care of their communities and that took care of the people who were vulnerable in them imperfectly. Were there lots of like, biases and all that, yes. Um, but uh, people saw their life, their lives as embedded within and serving community in a way that they don't now. And so what Weave's ultimate mission is to try to sort of bring that culture back and, and build one that is appropriate for today. Uh, and so the way that we do that, I say we, and I haven't worked with them for a while, but it still feels like it's mine or that I, I'm part of it. Um, is that we try to identify uh, particularly um, what we actually do is we go into communities and ask, who do you trust? And after a while, if you ask enough people that question, the same few names will keep showing up. And those are the people who are what we call weavers. They are living, they're living out the, the, um, the life of relationship, the life of devotion to community. And so we try to lift those people up. We try to get them the resources they need, tell stories about them, um, sort of help people see like, you could live like this. And uh, they're also incidentally some of the happiest people you'll meet because uh, they they know what their lives are for. And so that's what Weave is about is trying to just spread that ethos far and wide. Great. Well, Braver Angels, um, on your website, you have the following sentences. You say, launched in 2016, Braver Angels is a national citizens movement to bring liberals, conservatives, and others together at the grassroots level, not to find centrist compromise, but to find one another as citizens. Through workshops, debates, and campus engagement, Braver Angels helps Americans understand each other beyond stereotypes, form community alliances, and reduce the vitriol that poisons our civic culture. Talk a little bit about the genesis and the mission of uh, Braver Angels. Absolutely, yeah. So I actually, I found Braver Angels because this was right after the 2016 election and I actually covered them for the Times. And um, so I, we were just, <laughs> David and I were kind of going around the country looking for hope in a way, like saying like, wow, this is a really deep chasm. Like, are there groups that are working on this? And so Braver Angels has three co-founders um, and uh, two of them are named David. So there's David in New York and David in Ohio. And David in New York, the day after the 2016 election called David in Ohio and said, hey, like, what is it like over there? Because uh, basically in DC, it feels like, I mean, in uh, New York, it feels like a morgue. And David in Ohio said, that's really funny because my neighbors, are literally talking about hope and change. Those are the words they're using. That's what, this is what they, that's what they hope to see. And, and they also, David in Ohio said, my neighbors are saying that the thing that they hope Trump can do is bring us together. And so David in New York and David in Ohio were like, well, what would happen if we were to take 10 people who at the time, Trump voters and 10 Clinton voters and put them in a room and see if they could talk to each other? Like, what would happen? Okay, so they plan this, they re uh, recruit the people and it's gonna be in Ohio and then, uh, but they have no idea what they're gonna do with them yet. And so they call, um, David in New York calls a family therapist who he's worked with for years named Bill Doherty, uh, who's a leader in his field. And they mention like, oh, we're thinking about doing this. And Bill says, oh guys, <laughs> I don't think you know what you're getting into. Um, and Bill, by the way, has just spent the year seeing more uh, people. Um, so he's a primarily a marriage counselor. Uh, more couples walk into his office on the verge of divorce over politics than ever before. 
And it's, so he's seeing like, oh my gosh, like, what is this? And so he says, I don't think you guys, like, this could go really badly if we don't do it right. And so Bill says, maybe I could help you. Uh, and so Bill comes in and he designs and structures a workshop. And so everybody, uh, they, they go through these Friday night, Saturday, Sunday um, together. And it's just an incredibly powerful experience for everybody involved. Like um, there are tears, there are personal um, uh, disclosures, there are, um, it's, it's amazing. And people on both sides say, if you could do this for other people in our country, it would change the world. Like it would be, it would be incredible. And so then that was that incident, that uh, workshop was covered by um, an NPR station in Minnesota. And so then the story gets out. And so then we start getting phone calls from people in just everywhere. Like, and so we get phone calls, you know, hey, this is a big problem in Albuquerque. Can you bring that here? Hey, this is a problem in Sarasota. Hey, I'm from um, a small town in Tennessee and we really are having this problem. Can you come here? And so we just got flooded with um, requests and with people who, most importantly, with people who wanted something different. They wanted something better. And so then we, put together just a little tour on a shoestring of like, we got a bus and, and this is where I, what I covered um, and went around uh, to different places doing as many workshops as we could. And so um, the, the thing that we came to, to see though, is that it was much bigger than we could do ourselves. And so we started creating trainings so that the people who called in and say, Hey, I want to do this in Wasilla. We could say, absolutely. Um, here's what you need to do. Uh, for you to for you to do that for you to lead this and um, today we have a presence in all 50 states we have uh, between 10 and 15,000 dues paying members we have um, between two and three thousand trained volunteer leaders who run these things all over the country and it's just it's a very powerful thing and it's it's interesting because most nonprofits have to like ask for try to like get people to recognize their problem not this. We just had to give people who wanted something better the tools to make it happen. Well, April, one thing that you write about a lot, and I think is at the heart of, of this your group, is the notion of polarization. And in a recent essay, you said, we are arguably living in the most polarized time since the Civil War. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what's more, the particular, the particular variety of polarization that presently plagues our society is an especially nasty one. And you talk about two types of polarization. One negative, which is the contact, the sense of, you know, my party not might not be great, but the other one, people are really bad. And the other one, the, the other one is effective, which means not only are they bad, you know, but they are bad people. Right. And you talk about these two types of polarization and how they kind of cohere into the, uh, the poisonous environment that we're in right now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. It's uh, because people will say like, well, you know, political differences have existed forever and they have, but uh, it's different when you, <laughs> when you say, it's not that I like my party, I just hate the other guys. And also, and then I think the affective part is the real like kicker because these days there's a real strong tendency on both sides uh, to say, if I disagree with you, it's not just that I don't like your positions, it's that I think you're a person of bad character. Like, I think you're not a good person. And there's, uh, that is not the way that this has typically been in our society. By those measures, this is the worst time since the Civil War. And, you know, people will pull up the the Hamilton and, excuse me, the um, some of the early campaigns in our country's history, presidential campaigns, and say, people said all kinds of stuff. They did. But what I don't know, my impression is that what's unique today is that people are writing off their friends, their family members, their neighbors. Like it's 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 this thing about uh, you cannot possibly be a good person if you voted for that man. Um, And so that's the that's the thing we're trying to fight. In fact, one of the things that is um, uh, that we are really clear about. So you read some of our our self-description on our website, right? And you you might have noticed the phrase, we're not about bringing people together for centrist compromise. And that's really important because we want people to know you don't have to agree. Like we're not here to like make you agree about the issue. We're here to make you, um, to help you see who the other side actually is. 
like who that person on the other side. And so I lead the debates program. And so, and we try to persuade each other, sure. But it's, it's um, the ultimate goal is to attack that second piece. It's the, you can't be a good person if you voted for that guy. Um, because that, that is just almost never true. Uh, and I think we all live in bubbles these days, right? And people don't, it's easy to believe if you don't know anybody well who, and, and you don't know how to ask questions that can lead to good conversation rather than sort of a breakdown. Um, uh, it's hard to, um, it's just hard to know who the people on the other side really are. Uh, but the, <laughs> I have good news for America. We do, which is like the other people, the people on the other side are wonderful. They are great people. They are smart people. They care. They have the same values. Uh, they may think about them differently or rank them differently, but it's n virtually never the case that they just don't care about uh, children or health for people who are vulnerable or security or whatever it is. Uh, so, so that's the part we're really trying to tackle. We've had a couple conversations with people very, very different political leanings um, who've made a, a same point. And I'm thinking of we had a conversation with Elliot Cohen, a, mm. a kind of a conservative Republican, um, and Anne-Marie Slaughter. Um, uh -huh. uh, and in, in very different contexts, they said something very surprising to me, at least. They said, politics has become too important in the United mm -hmm. States. And I think what they meant is that, that our identification with a political perspective has taken on a, a kind of a new weight and rather you know it's become too central to our identities as as human beings what do you think of that i think that is 100 percent true i think that uh so there are a, a number of trends in the last 50 years or 60 depending which trend you're looking at uh that i think roughly amount to a transition in American life from a concrete community and, and were there problems? Yes, but concrete community to abstract identity. And so what I, um, to, I'm gonna paint with a broad brush for a second and say that like 50, 75 years ago, in general, when you thought about your identity, it was, well, I'm from this place or, well, I work for this company and I will for 30 years. Um, well, I'm from this family. It's very, uh, or I'm really into sports. It's it's something that um, it you tended to be in a place with a group of people for the long haul, and that meant that uh, when people when when stuff came up, right, when um, somebody had an alcohol problem or whatever, you couldn't have a simple view on that. It couldn't be well, they're just irresponsible or well, they just have a disease. It had to you had to see like no, it's probably some of both, and it's complicated and um, and uh, and so I think a lot of political issues, when you're in a community, you are forced to see the people on the other side and the, some of the nuances, like some of the just human stuff that makes it clear that there's no simple answer, right? And, and you know people who think the totally opposite thing and like, yeah, you know, Uncle Bob's a little nuts, but like, he's good. He's Uncle Bob, right? Like, um, I, and I'm going to have to work with him. And so, you know, um, whereas today, uh, people talk a lot about how the world has changed really fast. But another thing that's true is that because we are so untethered, because we get to choose like where we live, who we're with, who we talk to, what our hobbies are, what church we go to, how we spend our time, um, all, I mean, and yes, there are some of those choices are easier for some people than others. And I could say more, but there's a lot more choice in life by and large. And what that means is that, um, your identity is much more something you've chosen. And that puts a lot of emphasis on beliefs. So all of a sudden your sort of propositional beliefs, like the actual um, things that you decide and, and assert are a bigger part of who you are, who you think of uh, yourself as. And because you carry those with you. Uh, and so the um, beliefs are much more important than they used to be. And what that means is that you, insofar as that's part of your identity, it's abstract. It's not, um, so it's not, I'm part of the local bowling league for lack of a better example. It's, I am a Republican and there are people who are Republicans all over the place. It's, it's sort of not connected to something on the ground and human. And so then you can have a lot of, um, 
but that identity is more important to you because it's a, it's, it's, it's not that it's all you've got exactly, but it's like, you need something to hold on to for who you are. And then combine that with the decline of religious institutions. And uh, you have people who have a lot of moral energy. And I'm, I'm just going to speak in my own language. I believe that people like have a lot of moral and spiritual energy that, that, they, that needs to go somewhere. They need some way to believe that like, this is what makes a person good. And this is what it means to live a good life. And they need to know how to act on it. So that, because everybody wants to be, be good, be part of something good, be part of something bigger. And so then a lot of that energy gets channeled into, into politics. And so, yes, there's a reason that you're seeing sort of pseudo theological beliefs on left and right. And, and that you pick up a sense of like, this is too important here. Like this feels almost like people are calling it sacred because uh, in a way they are. Um, so yeah, I agree with them both. Well, you, the, the thing that you're focused on is polarization and trying to find ways to bridge this. And, and you, your, your construct is different than others. There's a lot of groups now working on polarization, but you're, you're very um, focused on the notion of, of, of conflict being not unhealthy. At one point you write, you know, you're talking about your program, you say, we help people build relationships through structured conflict driven by deep differences and to love people for their alternative moral basis, not in spite of them. This is important because in spite of them is the presumed paradigm most of the time, whether or not it is made explicit. Talk about this notion of, of, of conflict as a constructive force if it's just well channeled. Mm, absolutely. Well, <laughs> first, just to acknowledge, you're right. I'm a little bit of a rebel or something in the de in the depolarization field because, because the the sort of default paradigm is if we can just see that we're all people, if we can just see that we all care about X, like our children or whatever, if we can all see that we all are fundamentally the same, then we can get along. But I think actually that that misses a really important thing about relationships, which is we don't love each other because we're all the same. <laughs> we love each other for our differences often. And, you know, you can take this to a real, a very personal place. Like if you think about the people that you love, a lot of what you love about them is things that are special to them that are like about them, not about you. And so I think that, uh, that difference is on our side. Now, what people will say is, well, we can celebrate difference, but that doesn't mean we have to have conflict. But I don't, I actually don't think that's true. I think that conflict is not optional. I think it's unavoidable and that all we get to do is choose how. But that's a really important thing. We can choose how, and uh, and there are, <laughs> there are really, um, everybody like, so I run a debate, uh, the debate part of Braver Angels, right? And that's, um, people will often tell me like, why, but I thought you wanted people to get along and to agree with, to like get along, be able to talk to each other. And I'm saying, well, yeah. And they would say, but debate doesn't do that. <laughs> like debate is like about disagreeing. It's about winning. It's about like, and you know, I'll tell you about a debate I had recently, like with my mother-in-law, da, 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 right. Um, but what's actually true is that if, uh, if you go at it the right way, debate can actually build I think stronger relationships in some cases than um, things that are based on people being the same. And the reason is that uh, conflict, like I said, it's inevitable, it's part of all of our lives. And, and, and frankly, differences scare people. And so if you can, if you can navigate those, but the, they're also where we have the most to learn from each other. And so if you can navigate that, those tensions in a way that is, um, protects people without, protect is a funny word because our debates do not feel protective, but they basically, they make sure it's fair. If you can make sure it's fair, make sure people aren't gonna get jumped on and also give people a free space where they know they're gonna get to speak their mind and say what they really believe, um, people will walk in. And then there's an amazing thing that happens, which is, oh, actually, I'm just going to take a second and explain our style of debate because I think it's different and that it, um, it's worth taking a second to do that. So there are three or four basic rules. Rule number, or, uh, but the, I guess the most important thing is that when people think of debate, they think of the competitive kind where there are points and there are teams and, you know, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. Um, 
this is not that. And they also think of political debates where politicians will like spew talking points that have nothing to do with the other what the other person's saying. And uh, this isn't that either. Um, we say that what we're doing is a collective search for truth. And what that means is that we are gonna take on the toughest questions. Like, I mean, we've done, was the election stolen? We've done, should we defund the police right after George Floyd? We've done, uh, was Trump actually good for the working class? Um, uh, all kinds of stuff that, that really hits people's buttons, abortion, um, guns, immigration. Uh, and so there's, there's nothing that we won't take on, but it really is true that you can talk about anything if you have the right spirit and a couple basic rules. So it's a collective search for truth. There are no teams. Um, and we ask that people say what they believe. So that means that um, we wanna hear, we ask people, please don't make a case. Don't list a bunch of facts to us. Tell us what you actually think um, and tell us all of it. Tell us what you're not sure about too. Uh, and so that's one rule. And then everyone in the room is allowed to speak. That means if we're on a campus and uh, college administrators in the room, he or she can speak, it's not just the students. If the janitor wants to speak and they're in the back of the room, they can speak. Uh, we've had our videographer give speeches before. Like, and the idea is uh, there are no bystanders in our democracy and there shouldn't be in this conversation either. We actually need all the voices. And then the third thing, and this is the sort of the, the like structural piece is that you have to, uh, it's a, based on parliamentary procedure, you have to address the chair. And so what that means is that when somebody's asking a question um, or answering one, you don't say, um, you know, rather than saying, John, how could you believe that? You say, Madam Chair, the previous speaker said X, Y, Z, why does he or she believe um, this thing? So what it does, you would say, Madam Chair, the prior speaker said X, um, my question for him or her is why? And uh, what that does is it takes what would normally be a or what could be a, something that feels like a personal attack and, and just turns down the heat a little bit. And so the, um, uh, what all this does is it means that it feels fair, people know they're not gonna get jumped on. And there's an amazing thing that happens, which is that uh, people start listening to the other side and saying, oh, they have actually some pretty good arguments. And, they believe that stuff for reasons that I could actually kind of understand. And, uh, and as they hear people struggling, again, we say, say everything you believe, tell us what you're not sure about. With the hard question, it, it's disarming, right? You see like that person is just trying to, to figure this out too, like I am. And then about halfway through every debate, um, the original uh, sort of topic changes and, or it, it the debate sort of goes through a level shift. And what that means is that we start talking about something deeper. So say we've started with, should we legalize prostitution? What happens about halfway through is that, that we've said all the sort of policy things about that. And then people start saying it, that it shifts somehow to, well, but is the body something that can be sold? And what really is sexuality? And how do we think about um, helping people who may say they don't want help, even though they're doing something that some people would say hurts them. And so we get into all of a sudden this more human level of engagement with whatever the question was, right? And I could tell you like defund the police goes here, uh, was the election stolen goes here, and the deep pieces of, of it are different, but but you see people's human uh, human side come out and it's just, no one thinks there are easy answers once you get to that because like, well, what is sexuality really? Like nobody thinks there's an easy answer to that. What does it mean to, um, to protect a community when we know there really is violence? Not an easy answer to that. And so uh, you just have to give people the structure to, and, and the, the, um, the spirit uh that enables them to show up in the way that they actually would want to. And to, uh, you know, we used to be, we, uh, we say, you know, it brings out their better angels and it really does. And the thing is that um, it's not because we're all the same. It's because we have figured out how to have a conflict in a way that enables people to offer what they really have and to listen in a different way. And 
I, yeah, <laughs> I often uh, find that things that are structured as conflicts are more liberating than things that are structured as, well, really we're all the same. And the reason is that if you walk into something where um, there's a presumption of sameness, uh, somewhere in the back of your mind, especially if you think you're not part of the dominant group, whatever that is, if that's liberals, if that's conservatives, if that's white people, whatever it is, uh, you're, you're gonna assume, and here we come back to culture, right? Like there are hidden rules here and um, I'm, not really supposed, I'm not supposed to violate them. And if I don't agree with them, or if the rules don't like allow for my kind of person, I'm out of luck. Whereas if you structure it as a conflict, then people who might feel uncomfortable in, in those other situations can say, hey, this doesn't work for me. Like I have something completely different to say, and you're not gonna like, this doesn't fit with your paradigm, but it is actually what's true for me. And so, yeah, I'm a big believer in, in structured conflict. Well, April, you've done a lot of work on debates and college campuses. I know that's one of your areas of interest and focus and specialty. And um, in some of your writings, I mean, you 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 are concerned about the culture in co college campuses where there's a, an intolerance um, and a kind of a hostility to free speech. Um, but tell us about how 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 you are developing programs. Um, on college campuses to to sort of break this logjam and to and to get uh, this sort of polarization addressed and confronted. Totally. Well, so college campuses, I have to <laughs> I have to be careful where I say this, but I really think they're my favorite place. Like I just love college students, and because they're so interesting and they're so like they are like man. If you want people to wrestle with deep questions, find some college students. They'll do it. And, um, and it's also the case that I believe that, so we talked about moral energy earlier. I think college students, there's a, um, the first, uh, so the book Middlemarch, the description of the main character, Dorothea, um, is the way that she's described is, is as spiritually ambitious. And so she's somebody who has a lot of moral energy, really wants to be good, be like, do something really good in the world. And I think that college students are usually that way. I think they're usually very morally ambitious. And what that means is that they want, uh, they want a way to be part of something bigger and to be part of a fight for the good. And what happens I find is that they walk onto college campuses and are only offered one framework for what it can mean to be good and to be part of the good. And it's, and that's actually, we could stop there. I'll, I'll say more, but we could stop there because that is actually the problem that there's only one framework. Uh, when in fact, like in the world, it's a complicated place. There are a lot of different ways to think about what it means to be good and how to contribute to um, uh, a movement for, for positive change. Uh, or, and yeah, even if you're conservative, I think that uh, we could say positive change, it just would look different. And so, what happens then is that people ha only have this one paradigm and it tends to sort of the, the rough shape of it is there's an uh, oppressor group and there's a victim group or there are oppressors and their victims. And there's no um, uh, forgiveness or complexity or, you know, we are, we are all part of the problem. People would say, you know, we're all part of the problem, but there's no, uh, it's like there's no give in the system. And so, uh, and what that leads to is a, um, a sense that there are the right beliefs and the wrong beliefs and the right behaviors and the wrong behaviors. And in order to be good, um, it's kind of legalistic. You have to like say the right things, do the right things, wear the right things, believe the right things. And there's just not, um, it's rigid. And, and it's also, uh, I don't mean this in a critical way, but it, it presumes certainty when really most of us do not have certainty about the kinds of things we're trying to fight. And so what we try to do is just give people an experience, a, a space where they can wrestle with the, the questions. And what they find typically is that they, they love that and that it's not normal. It's honestly, 
Um, see, this is, I am going to be arrogant for a second. I think this is what people go to college for. Not, not just, not just as manifested in our program, although we do it. I think they go to college to figure out what they believe and to figure out how to devote their lives to something really important and really, um, beautiful and good. And that, uh, right now the campus, the climate on campuses only gives them one way to think about that. But most students know that it's insufficient. So it doesn't matter who we talk to, liberals, conservatives, whoever, they will usually say, in fact, I was at a campus last week where they said, um, we love this. Uh, in class, we can't do this because there are the police there, which is a very small fraction of students who enforce the norm of you will use this language, you will believe these things, you will say these things, you'll do these things. But people don't like that. Liberals don't like it. It's, I mean, and I say liberals because people think, you know, they see this on the left and it is on the left, but uh, it's, it's also, <laughs> it's not like all the people who identify as leftists or liberals are on board with it. And so what we try to do is just give people a, a place to think with each other. And uh, by and large, that goes really well. And I, it's, it's actually sort of similar to what we do with um, adult communities. And we of course do debates with adults and, and workshops as well. Um, in that there are people all over. I think that there are leaders on every single campus who want to lead a culture of greater openness and of sort of more rigorous, more thought that includes more wrestling with the real questions that are, are at issue here. And so what our job to do is basically to just give those people the ability to, to carry that out. And they need to know, they need tools and they need to know they're not alone that there are other students on other campuses who are um, trying, to, trying to make the same change. And, because uh, it can be really isolating and intimidating if you're the one person who's like risking getting canceled or you're the one person who's trying to do something different. And just to say this, I also think um, there's, I, and this is a little bit controversial, but um, there's this sort of caricature of free speech warriors and social justice warriors. And I actually, for what it's worth, I think that that is the real polarization on campuses these days. It's not so much Republican Democrat, it's free speech versus social justice. But the, the, what is, I think really true is that um, those two things are not deeply at odds. They, the way that people use those two terms and and can think about those two things can put them at odds, but they're not in a deep way. And so we try to help people uh, create climates where you can have free speech and social justice and uh, do the thing you came to school for, which is explore how to live the rest of your life. Well, you've said one of your big ambitions is to help transform campus cultures and, and, and you're, you're, you continue to search for kind of a tipping point in which this, these kind of techniques, you know, scale up and develop a critical mass. I mean, where, where do you think you are in this quest? How, how, how are you <laughs> feeling now? Hmm. It's a very good question. And um, I'm not going to do the thing where I say, you know, we've achieved it or we're really close or what. I mean, like, I'm, I'm going to try to be honest with you and, and say, like, I think that um, we're making good progress, uh, but we're not close to, like, finish finishing it. Like, it's, this is a, a big uh, phenomenon and a big, there's a way in which I think this really does have to do with the soul of America um, and that America is trying to wrestle with what does it mean uh, to, I think of it a lot like uh, if America is a person, right? And if you're a person who's done some really bad things, how do you work with that? How do you continue to think of yourself as a good person? How do you um, navigate sort of both accountability and forgiveness, atonement and um, grace? And the, uh, I just think that um, the conversation tends to sort of boil down to uh, America's really bad or I love my country. <laughs> and like, and it doesn't have to in the same way that it, with a person, um, you've got to, if you're a person who's made mistakes, which most of us have, um, sometimes they can be really bad mistakes. And that doesn't mean that you're unforgivable. And so you've got to find a way through it. Um, so that's, I, I say that because this is a big thing that is happening like to our country. 
And so um, we're trying to play our part, uh, but it's not something that's gonna get solved overnight. Um, as for how we're doing, to be honest, the, the thing is spreading like wildfire. Like it's a, it's um, for the most part, we are, our limitations are around capacity. So um, we, so for example, this weekend, uh, we work with a fabulous group called Bridge USA that is in my opinion, the best sort of homegrown, like started by students for students, uh, bridging the divide group. And they have chapters on maybe 50 campuses. We've worked with maybe 50 more. And um, so we work with them. They uh, do our style of debates and we, uh, because um, they need like ways to like navigate these differences in a good way. And we, uh, but what they're really good at is building chapters and supporting them and like having that student to student communication. And so we work with them uh, and our, the, there are a couple other organizations, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni is part of this too. And um, the nice thing is that we all have the same goal and it's real, real clear that um, we're trying to uh, build a student movement that can change, um, can, I don't know, I could use the word redeem, that might be a little strong, college campuses, but um, create uh, campuses, a campus culture for the future that is really healthy and powerful and good and enables universities to serve the role that they that they should in society and that enables our young leaders to be trained in the in um, and formed in the ways that they need to be to lead our society to a better place. And um, so in terms of like actual scale, I think that right now we have a really good model and that we're at the beginning of the scaling process. Um, our, we've run, you know, our numbers are in the, the hundreds roughly for how many schools and how many debates and that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, um, but what we're trying to do is get a really good uh, get our model down really well so that we can then when somebody comes to us and says, Hey, I'm at Purdue or I'm at DePauw. And for what it's worth, we work like a student can reach out to us. A professor can reach out to us. We always work with students and professors together because there are students and professors on each campus who want to lead, um, their campuses to a, a, a better culture. And so if it's a student that reaches out to us, we say, hey, that this is great. Well, we would love to empower you here and find a professor to work with. If it's a professor, we say, find some students to work with. And so um, the, the goal is to create on each campus a little nucleus of people who can then begin to sort of build something. And uh, yeah, so we're in the beginning stages, I would say of, of scaling, but um, I think that once again, there are leaders on every campus who want to see this. And so for us, it's just a matter of, can we, uh, can we give them what they need and how fast can we do that? We had a question emailed in, Jim from Barrington, Illinois, asked about if you're, what your group is doing any work to confront the disinformation and harassment of school boards. And maybe you could spend a minute to talk about just some of your, the way your program works with elected officials hmm. and dealing with constituents, because I know that's a new innovation that you've, uh, you've developed. Absolutely. So the, the big new thing for Braver Angels this year is what we call Braver Politics, which is just to say, taking this and, and you know, people have been uh, crying out for this for our, the whole time we've been in existence. They've said, okay, this is great, but can we do this with politicians? Can we please like take this to the halls of power? And um, the answer this year is yes, we feel like we're finally ready to, uh, we've got these tools down. They're really good. And, um, and the thing is that politicians, man, if you want to find people who don't like polarization, go find some politicians because they, this isn't what they went to Congress to do. This is not why they ran for school board or county commissioner or whatever it is. They want to like make their communities better and do good things. And we're in a world these days where, you know, so the local county commissioner or the person who's supposed to fix the sewers gets asked, what's your position on abortion and voted out of office because of their position on abortion. And it's just crazy. And so um, uh, I'm gonna answer this question with regard to politicians and with regard to information. And they're a little bit different. Um, so we're doing a lot with politicians. Our, our sort of big official launch is I think two weeks from now. And so um, keep an eye out for that. Uh, but the, the plan is to, um, 
work with local officials at every level of government, particularly state and local, but also federal in some cases, to uh, give them the tools to interact better with their constituents, to um, have the conversations that they need to among each other, uh, and to, again, be leaders in their spaces for a different way of engaging that is not so unbelievably gridlocked. And, excuse me, with regard to, so, um, critical race theory and school boards and all that, obviously that's a great example of this where it's just been blowing up all over the country and um, and in really nasty ways. And man, you wanna look at affective polarization? Um, like, I think you're a bad person, like look no further than, than school policy because people get, oh my goodness, so intense about that. And uh, so information is, is a part of that. Um, with regard to school boards specifically, what I can say is that we're uh, we're working on a model that they can use to have more effective conversations. Because the model right now is the school board members sit at the front of the room behind a table and people there's an open mic and people come up and yell at them and say like, this is crazy, da 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 da, and they sit down. And the school board members sort of just sit there like this. And like, nobody feels heard. Nobody feels like there's gonna be any change. The school board members are like totally overwhelmed and kind of traumatized by the whole thing. And like, nothing good is happening there, right? People yell at each other, nothing productive is happening. When in fact, like for the most part, we want the same things, um, which are good good education about our society's history, including, um, you know, the bad things that have happened with race and the progress that's been made and all of it. We want good education around that. And so we're working on helping school boards specifically um, to like develop just, tools again to like navigate that. With regard to information, um, this is one of the hardest aspects of this work because there is misinformation, there's disinformation. Um, sorry, the way that I use those words, misinformation is people say things that are incorrect. Um, they are sincerely telling you something that they think is true, but it isn't. Disinformation is what, I don't know, the Russians or whoever, it's, it's intentional propaganda um, and people say, and, and I'm not going to weigh in on this, that like political parties in our country do that too. One could argue that one way or the other. But um, we tend to, our posture tends to be that with misinformation, if you're saying it sincerely, we'll work with you. And the reason is that if you, generally speaking, if you rule out certain information, you also rule out the people who believe it. And uh I think there's actually a bigger trust problem than there is, um, I think that's that we've got to fix that first because you can't persuade anybody if they don't trust you. We can't um, rebuild things if there's no trust. And so generally speaking, if uh, if it's misinformation where you're, you mean well, <laughs> you're just wrong, um, we'll work with that. Uh, with regard to disinformation, that's harder. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't think we have a, worked out policy on that yet because that and that the hard thing is that you that assumes that there is intent to deceive and that puts us in a position of knowing that or trying to make a call on that and that I, I don't think we have an answer for that yet it's something that we will need to answer as we continue to do work with like the forces of power not just regular people um but yeah so that's what I have to say on that for now Good. Well, I know you're going to have to hustle off to a plane in a second. I have one final question. On your website, you talk about current goals and you say influence American music, increase the number, quality and success of American songs and musicians inspired by the Braver Angels way. Tell us uh, for about that for a sec. Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite uh pieces of Braver Angels, we have something called the Music Committee. Um, there is a collection of songwriters. It's This is like everything else in our in our work where like, as soon as we put out a call for songwriters, like just dozens of them came out of the woodwork and said like, I wanna write songs that are gonna bring our country together. This is my, you know, my best shot. We did a competition um, and I could send you the link to that if, if you want, but it's, oh my gosh, it's so powerful. And, and I, my, um, my sort of, I'm just gonna put this out there. I, I kind of think that it, that if we do this right and if um, if the country's ready for it, I think that the next major movement in music, sort of like you know the peace movement in the 60s could be around depolarization because our singer songwriters are that, our musicians are that good and, and man, it's inspiring. It's really inspiring stuff 
So that's what we're trying to do. And um, there are people from every music genre. There's a, <laughs> in our list of 20, like top 20 songs from our competition, there's a heavy metal song. There are multiple country songs. There's like hip hop, there's pop, like all kinds of stuff. So, so yeah, it's um, some days when, you know, when the work seems hard, I think it's okay. The musicians are gonna inspire everybody to a better world. Um, and we'll just sit back and, and watch. <laughs> and enjoy. Well, yeah. April, thank you so much for really a delightful conversation. And I, I know, as I said, I know you're hustling off to the airport, but if circumstances bring you uh, through Illinois and route to Kansas, please swing by Southern Illinois University. Oh, We'd love I to show you will. around and introduce you to the community here and talk to classes. And, and, uh, and I'm sure you would hear a lot of uh, student uh, interest in, in what you're doing now, which seems really important work. Fabulous. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, it's a privilege to, to be here and to talk to you. And, and um, thanks for, uh, for taking the time to, to dig into this and, and it shows that you care. So thanks. Thank you so much, April. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.